This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Joan Dijon, author of Mutinous Women, How French Convicts Became Founding Mothers of the Gulf Coast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me on, Deidre. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Thank you. Well, I, I, it was an accident, but an accident determined by my past. Um, I, I grew up in southwest Louisiana. I've, was in a, I grew up in a French family, and I've worked on the, French, the period in French history in which these women were arrested and deported for decades. So I know the archives well. And one day, a number of years ago, I was digging in the prison archives. They have the, every file of the arrest and incarceration of a prisoner in Paris is, that has survived is filed by year and in alphabetical order. And I was digging in 1719 for someone whose last name began with the letter F. I don't even remember who or what anymore. And I was going through the files, and all of a sudden I came across this file that was labeled Fontaine, F-O-N-T-A-I-N-E, comma, M period, A period. And I wouldn't have opened it. That wasn't the person I was looking for. But someone else had added another line underneath. And other female prisoners destined for the islands. And I thought the islands that attracted my attention, I assumed they meant the Caribbean islands, the French colonies in the Caribbean, but I opened it up. And in no time at all, I saw the word Louisiana. And that got my curiosity up because of my past. And that's how I discovered the women's story. It took, it was a long time between then and now, but that was the beginning of it. False risks, chumped up charges, who were the women? Were they all prostitutes? They were, none of them were prostitutes. They were down on the list as prostitutes and they were accused, most of them were accused of prostitution. They were labeled by the French police, by the French officials who sent them off to across the Atlantic. They were labeled prostitutes. People since then have seen these official lists and accusations, and they believed them. So in, in the legend and memory of the Gulf South, the women who traveled in, in this way in 1719 are known as prostitutes. I can promise you 
that I dug. And I'm someone once called me a colleague that said that was like a dog going after a bone when I'm after something in the archives. I dug forever. I did not find one shred of evidence of anything we would call prostitution. What I found instead were cases of, for the most part, working women, laundresses, seamstresses, all the things. I didn't even know some of the things. People in big households of aristocrats in Paris, they employed people to wash dishes. So people, women who had all kinds of menial jobs, maids, um, menders of clothing in big households, they would be accused of something, all kinds of things, and the police would just write it down as prostitution. Paris and, but, but they were not guilty. I want to stress that again. Sorry. Thank you. Paris 1719. Was it safe to be a woman at that time? It was probably the one of the worst moments ever, Deidre, in the history of Paris to be a woman. Paris was under was living at that time through something, the kind of moment we are more familiar with today, but no one then would have known what to, how to identify it. They were living through a stock market boom. It's the first time in history that stocks just exploded. It was the first stock market in France, and the stock exploded. Everybody thought this was great fun. The stock was doubling, tripling in value. And when that was going on, people were so focused on quick profits and gains from the stock market that nobody paid attention to sort of basic things. What I found that year in the archives was just terrifying. I'll give you a couple of small examples. For example, the police all over Paris noted instances. There were gangs of young men who would go around attacking women. They would attack them in public places, even in churches even, they would go to their homes and if they, a young woman opened the door, they would break in and chase her to their bedroom and they would scream at them and they would beat them with their canes. Most men carried canes at the period. They would beat them with their canes and call them, excuse the words, what they would say, slut, whore, etc. So there was some of this sort of mass violence against young women breaking out, women who ran shops, either because they owned them are because they were shop girls. They worked in the shops. They were in danger too. Young men would break into the shop and start running over and screaming to everyone that the young woman was a whore. So there was a sense for some, you know, this combination of financial gain, crazy financial gain, and violence against women became very common in 1719. If a woman broke a rule, could she be deported? All kinds of rules, any kind of small rule. No, the women who were deported broke. I mean, they would be accused of theft when they would say, but I didn't steal it. The police were so corrupt at that moment in Paris that they had decided they were trying to help the authorities who wanted to send women to the colonies. And so they were arresting women. So they would write anything down as something else, a more serious crime. So any kind of rule that you broke, and that rule might be as simple as the following. A young woman would be arrested. She would say, no, 
I wasn't there. I have an alibi. Check with this person. Or this is not fair. I didn't do this. What are you doing? That talking back to the police would get her arrested. And many of those women were deported. Now, when we look at what were the sources for this rich history of the women who were deported to Louisiana and other parts? Tell us about that. Okay. Well, one of the things that French archives has have, that Parisian archives have, that's incredibly rich as a source, are lots of police archives. I think that this is due to the fact that at the time of the French Revolution in 1789, people wanted to preserve the history of what they saw as the monarchy's wrongs to the people. So they preserved all the archives of the prisons, the royal prisons that they shut down and destroyed, like the Bastille is the famous example, and those files are all still there. The Parisian police, in addition, have a huge history. You can still find every lockup book of the Parisian police for every year. So in other words, huge ledgers. This is something I read them standing up a lot of the time because my back can't take it. They're so big. But every person arrested in Paris listed and there's a spit there. It's a it's divided into columns. So you have the name, you have the accusation, you have the acute, the arresting officer's report, and you have the reports made afterwards. So there are all kinds of archives like this. There are other archives from the, um, the judiciary bodies who, tr who tried them. Those are less complete, but you've got ver many varying sources in different archives that give different aspects of the arrest of the history of those arrested and incarcerated in Paris. So those were the kinds of archives I followed. I also tracked some of the families were, if you had any kind of money, you had to have some money for this to be possible, then you went, before, you went in front of notaries to register various moments in your life, wills, marriages, etc. And those documents had a lot of information about the financial situation of family. So I used those too. Women building homes. They were building these homes in New Orleans with their hands. Tell us. Well, this is one of the more amazing things. This is a lot forward in the story, but the women, once they got to those who survived all of this, and that was not by any means all of them. Once they survived, they quickly moved to various, there were not even places yet, outposts, land that the French had claimed as French land. New Orleans was part of that. New Orleans had just been named the new capital of all this huge French territory in the New World. And the French then were in possession, in their terms, of the whole Gulf Coast and leading into part of Florida. It went all up the Mississippi Valley to Illinois. It went far east, almost to the Carolinas. It went north into parts of Arkansas and north of Alabama. So there was a big territory, and they had just decided that there was going to be a new capital named New Orleans. So once they do that, one of the ways the first people in New Orleans, and these, some of these women were among the first European women, among the first women to live in New Orleans. And one of the things people could do was if you cleared the land yourself and built your own home, 
it was yours. So women who had been, right, they had nothing in Paris. They were washing dishes in a big household. If you got to New Orleans, and with they were married by then, they had just among the first marriages in New Orleans and other places, you and your husband could together, I can't even imagine how hard it would have been. You could clear that land. It's, it's a swamp land, right? Take the trees out, cut back the cane breaks, do that, and then build something. They were probably just huts, right? They had logs from the trees they had cut down, and they would build a shack but it was theirs. And then they became homeowners and property owners in New Orleans. Now, a number of them married guys who were really tough guys. Two of them who lived in early New Orleans, the first years of New Orleans, married blacksmiths. Now, blacksmiths are strong men. They had to, you know, they shoe horses. They have to pound metal. So blacksmiths were tough and the women were tough. If you worked all day long, at a backbreaking job, one of them, for example, who was in New Orleans and who married a blacksmith in Paris was an itinerant street vendor. She had to carry. I can't even imagine what it would have been like. It's a huge basket strapped to her back uh, and her stomach loaded with fruit and wander all through Paris selling fruit. Now, she was a tough lady, too. So together, these people built homes in new homes, shacks, but there were homes in New Orleans. Tell the audience about Fontaine, the 19-year-old in prison. Well, we have great timing, Deirdre. You're perfect with your question. That was the woman I was just mentioning, the itinerant street vendor. Uh, Manon Fontaine was 19 years old in 1700 when she was arrested. She was arrested in the most incredible manner. Uh, one, it was early one morning, 4.31 morning uh, in December. Now, that's the, it's pitch black at 4.30 in the morning in December, and it was in a part of Paris that had no street lighting. The, someone called the police because they found a body, a dead body in the street. The police went over. They, they found no suspects. They didn't know what to do. A couple of days later, people in the neighborhood started coming in and telling the police, I recognize someone who was there. Pitch black at night, right? I recognize this person. And they would say who this person was, a, the street vendor. The police bring her in and they, they talk about the accusations. She said, but no, 4.30 in the morning, I was home asleep. She lived with her mother. She was being raised by a single mother, a single parent. On the other side of Paris, she said, go ask my mother. We have this, they shared a bed. They were very poor people. And she said, tell, she'll tell you I was asleep there. They never asked her mother. They kept accumulating alleged evidence against her. I, I think they had 14 witnesses who claimed they had seen her. And finally, they started bringing her in with the witnesses. They called it confrontations in the Parisian legal system. And every one of the witnesses, when they saw her, they said, oh, no, I've never seen her before. She wasn't the woman I had in mind, but she'd been accused of murder. And eventually, the police were so angry about all this time wasted, they banished her from Paris. And they claimed on a technicality that she had returned to Paris. She hadn't respected the terms of her banishment. They sentenced her to life in prison. And that's how she ended up being there and deported and building a home in New Orleans with her husband, a blacksmith. And that's, she spent 19 years in prison because of false accusations. John Law, 
Did families make up stories during this time so that the women would be detained and deported? Tell us about John Law. Well, John Law is the man who created this stock market boom. He was a, fin a financier and a financial theorist. It's like someone who thought of new ways to try to save the economy. France was essentially bankrupt in seven, at the end in 1717-1819 because they had been fighting too many costly wars and the, it had come to roost for the economy. John Law was allowed to take over everything in the French economy. And if you can imagine, this is a, an economy that had, had no modern touches at all. Within a year, this one man introduced a national bank, paper currency, a stock market, stock. He's founded it all on Louisiana, which he said would be hugely profitable. And he started selling stock, which had the colony of Louisiana, as a foundation. He claimed that Louisiana would become hugely profitable because they would raise tobacco in Louisiana. Now, people probably realize that the East Coast, English colonies on the East Coast, in the Carolinas, the Chesapeake Bay, etc., were raising tobacco. And that was making a lot of money for the English. And so John Law just claimed, with no evidence, that Louisiana tobacco would be better than English tobacco, and so would, he gave claims for all of the money it would raise. The trouble was they couldn't grow tobacco in that climate, but nobody knew this then. So they were just in, people were investing money in something with no foundation. It was at that moment of this crazy get rich scheme that the whole country bought into that the women were arrested. And at that time, Numbers of families in Paris did something I found inconceivable. It was one of the things about this story that I found most gut-wrenching, because it was for me. Parents would begin denouncing to the police daughters in their, their own daughters for things that were, you know, they would make things up. They would exaggerate things, and they would claim to the police that these daughters were just incredibly, they were prostitutes, they were libertines, etc. You asked for some examples, I'm going to give you two. One young woman in Paris, it just, today it's inconceivable. One night she went out to a dance without getting permission. She had a stepmother, her father, her mother had died, her father had remarried. She went out to a dance. The stepmother claimed that when he brought her home, the young man had been so rude to her that she, the stepmother, had to go to bed for days because she was so upset by this. Because of this, they denounced this young woman to the police as a debauched young woman, a, a, a libertine, and she ended up being deported. Another young woman was, her parents were dead. She had come to Paris from a, a small city in the east of France. She was living with her sister and brother-in-law in Paris. She went to apprentice as a dressmaker. She was working in a, in a workshop, a dressmaker's workshop. And often the conditions were very hard in those workshops. People complained all the time. She, Jeanne Maou, was very independent, and she made she made a formal complaint about workplace conditions, and she said, I won't do this anymore, and she quit. Her brother-in-law and sister were so outraged by this behavior that they denounced her to the police as a libertine. 
And so this is how the kinds of thing by just showing some independence, these women and things that are truly okay. You might have at 19 asked your mother-in-law's permission to go to a dance, but that's not a huge crime afterward not to do so. For this, they were deported. Famine in Paris. How did that change things? Oh, well, famine was not only in Paris, Deidre, it was all over France. The early 18th century, for years in the early 18th century, there was a period of what we would now call climate change. In particular, there were a series of incredibly harsh winters, winters that were just off the chart in terms of cold and uh, snow and uh, frost, early frost and long winters. So early frosts, late frosts, in other words, crops were killed all and blighted all over the country. And France is a huge, it still is, but it was then a massive agricultural economy. So, for example, people depended on grain to make bread, and bread was the staple of the diet. People ate pounds of bread every day. Um, so then there was no grain. There was one incredible report at the end of one of these years of the worst, one of the worst winters. A priest in the village said, this year there was no grain. And this was in the bread basket of France. It would be the equivalent of the wheat fields of the Midwest. So they were, there was no the conditions were harsh. People were dying from the extreme temperatures, and there was no food. So famine broke out all over the country. And what this meant was that poor people in villages all over France were fleeing. They were trying to get to some place that they hoped would have some food. And in their minds, that meant cities. So they would try to go to any city in, the, in France, and many cities, smaller cities, could shut their walls. There were walled cities, and they were trying to shut them out, and people would dig under the walls. They were so desperate trying to find food. Paris was not a walled city, so people would just flood into the city, and Parisians went, there wasn't enough food for Parisians, and they didn't want to share anything with these poor people from the country, so they went, they were just going crazy against them. And people in Paris and the authorities in Paris passed all kinds of laws against paupers, against beggars, and you could be arrested on the spot if you were deemed, if you didn't have proof of employment, for example. Tell the audience the condition of the women once they reached America. Well, they had by that point not you can first of all they hadn't been fed in paris well when they crossed the atlantic the ships on which they traveled had brought had so little food on board there wasn't a lot of food anywhere and they just didn't they weren't prepared for this they traveled with enough flour to make which was what you needed to make bread as i said the basic staple of anyone's diet there was enough flour for the crew but not enough flour for anyone else. I can't imagine that the sailors on these ships were sharing their bread with these women who were pronounced prostitutes and dangerous criminals, and they were locked up in the hold of the ship. They were not giving them food, so they were very little fed then. When they got to the French colony, nobody wanted them. 
They've been labeled dangerous criminals. So they landed them on an island off the coast of what is now Alabama. And there on that coast, on that island, they didn't want them either. So then they put them into big rowboats and they row them to another island. And there it's an uninhabited island. So they just deposit them there and leave them. And the island had no fresh water, no food, no storage place for food. There were no blankets. It was late February on the Gulf Coast. It was a barrier island with no vegetation or no high vegetation, so no protection from the elements. And they left them there. So I think it's safe to say that the conditions were miserable for them. Now, there were Irish women in Paris. Tell us about that. Yeah, there were. One of the things I was surprised about were the numbers of foreign women who were arrested. I, I think all nations, and certainly the French at that moment, it probably hasn't changed that much over time, had a great suspicion of foreigners. And at this moment, there were numbers of Irish women in Paris. They were all Catholics, Irish Catholics. And at that time, in the very early 18th century, in Ireland, the Protestants were in power. And Protestants were pushing Catholics out of any kind of position of influence or wealth or anything. So Catholics couldn't hold, hold own land. Um, they couldn't hold office. And they didn't have proper access to education, indeed, almost no access to education. So my guess is that these young Irish women who, t- who were always arrested in groups, had. Tr- so I felt that they had probably traveled together in groups of five or six from Ireland to Paris. And there was the nearest Catholic country. They were trying to find a place where they could practice their religion freely and where they had access to a better life, a freer life. The reason I can't be sure of any of this is a time and again on arrest records of these young Irish women, I would find the police writing, she didn't understand a word of French. They had just gotten there. They didn't speak French. So um, they were arrested and they couldn't explain who they were. How did society look at the poor people in France? Were they, did they have cases of women who really asked to be deported? No. Well, actually one or two, um, they asked to be deported, but not because of poverty. Um, I think they were just so, and they felt that they had no life in France. The woman who was a seamstress, whose example I just met, mentioned, who quit her apprenticeship and her, her brother-in-law and sister denounced her to the police, the police for once had sympathy for her. I think people, people really liked this woman. That was clear. It happened time and again, both in France and in the colony. And they said to her, just leave Paris, go back home, and we won't keep you in prison if you'll do that. She was just, she was, I called her the free spirit because she just refused to accept anything like this. She said, I'll never go home. She hated her hometown. Her whole family was dead. There was nothing for her there. And she said, so send me, send me away. I don't think she knew what she was getting into. She couldn't have, but she chose, if you will, to be deported. So there was, there were some cases, two to be exact, when women did choose it. Otherwise, poverty was the main reason women were deported to this country, what became this country. Tell us about the people who asked to return 
back to France once they got here. Well, that rarely happened. Um, the women, for example, could not legally return to France. The, it, one of the conditions placed on their deportation was that they would be free in the colony, but that it was permanent banishment from France. So they were not able to return. One of them eventually returned. Now, they were deported in 1719. In 1734, so a long 15 years later, one of them did sail back to France. However, she traveled under her husband's name. So, And when she was in France, she was incredibly discreet. So no one would have known officially that one of these women had returned to France. They were not allowed. Otherwise, people were trying all the time in the colony to return to France. They petitioned to be allowed to return. And a few people were allowed to return and did manage to return if they could pay for their passage back. They did this in in every case because conditions were so bad in the colony. There was so much poverty there. The death toll was so high. So they thought they would be better off returning to France. Describe the illnesses that the women suffered once they reached Louisiana. We don't know exactly why people died when they reached the Gulf Coast. I was talking about that. I mentioned that just now with the people who wanted to return to France. There were all kinds, of course, of diseases in the colony that didn't exist in France. With contagious disease, I mean, look at the conditions today. We still can't identify things precisely in so many cases. And then they just didn't know. So they called the diseases fevers in the plural because people were just dying of unspecified illnesses and they died in masses. I mean, when they got to the Gulf Coast, for example, when they were allowed to leave this island where they had been deposited, they were rowed ashore into what is now called, what is now known as Biloxi. And in Biloxi, there were no, there was no housing for them. So all the women and thousands of other people, everyone who arrived in the colony for a year or so were just deposited on the beach in Biloxi, and they had no the sanitation, if it existed, was minimal. Overcrowded conditions, more and more crowded as time went on. Poor sanitation, bad food, etc. No access, to, little access to fresh water. All of that, all of this meant the disease could would spread very, very rapidly through these groups. So they died of unspecified. Illnesses is what I'd say. Now, something else you talked about in the book, you talked about the first 10 marriages in New Orleans. Five of the brides were deported women. Tell us about that. So at first, we don't know, for example, which, what are the dates were for the very first marriages among this, this group of deported women because there was no record keeping. Uh, marriages, of course, at that time were religious ceremonies performed by priests. There were very few priests in the colony, so it was hard to get married. In some of the settlements, we know that people who wanted to get married simply gathered some friends together, and then they stood in front of this group of friends and said, you know, I marry you. Um, you're my husband, you're my wife. And that counted, but there was no one to perform the ceremony. There was that, and one of the main problems, in addition to this, was the fact that there was no way to record 
even if there was a priest. They had, it's just, for me, it's incredible. All these records in Paris, right, of the police describing who was arrested, how they were arrested, what happened to them. But in, in the colony, there, were, there was no paper. Some of the, at first, they had little scraps of paper, but those, of course, haven't survived. They, they kept, the priest kept begging, send us a book in which we can record marriages and send us ink. Because without paper and ink, they couldn't do it. Finally, they get a book, and this one of the first, they have one in Mobile, they have one and that they record there for Mobile and Biloxi. Finally, they get one for New Orleans, just when the city is beginning. And the first marriages in, the, in New Orleans are recorded in this book. And of the first 10 of them, five of the women had come over in this, in this, on this ship and as deported women. Now, a ship arrived with 300 on board, and you said only 10 remained alive. Tell us that story. Pestilence is very simple. Um, the ship I was talking about, I think it was actually 40, but 40 is not a big number either. And in France, someone got on board the ship who was carrying a disease. And contagious disease, as we all know, spreads. And here were people in confined conditions for weeks at a time, and the disease kept spreading. And so of the um, 210 people boarded, 40 got off. So there could be that kind of death toll during the crossing simply from contagious disease. We don't know what they were. People called them plagues. And, you know, we don't know today what kind of plague. So I'd say, once again, unspecified fevers killed them off on, during the crossing. And that happened on most crossings. There were particularly terrible examples, such as the one you just asked me about. Biscuits. I thought this was interesting. Tell us that story about the biscuits. Well, what uh, food, bad food, so that these people crowded onto the beach in Biloxi. And as time went on, this happened went on for over a year, hundreds of people, finally thousands of people are piling onto the beach there. They have no food. And people finally bring some food brought over on a French ship. However, people in France would do this again and again. When they would send food to the colony, they would send substandard food. So in the case of hardtack, biscuits, as people people may know it as hardtack, um, it's just flour, but the flour was spoiled. And that probably had picked up microbes somewhere along the way. They also sent salt pork that was spoiled. So these people were starving there on the beach and they would grab anything given them, but they'd sent them spoiled food from France. So they were eating this food, which they thought would save them. And they were dying from that as well. Mobile. Was it common for the women to remarry quickly? Well, it was common for women to remarry all over the colony because their husbands died. I mean, women died, as we know, we've just been talking about it, massively in the colony. Um, but men died massively, too. And anyone who, if you had, especially if you had a child to raise, women remarried as quickly as possible. 
It was just, and that happened in France too, by the way. It was, it was so hard to raise children and men remarried as well because they had to have someone to help them raise the children. So remarriages took place all the time. I think the biggest, the most important story of that, one of the women married four times. So her three first husbands died. But that was a common story. It was just part of life in this new world. You talked about the Choctaw Native Americans who were enslaved. Tell us about their role there with the deported women. This is, it's a big question and it's hard to do it quickly, Deidre, but I'll just do a little bit about the enslavement of indigenous peoples, of Native Americans from various nations was quite common in various French colonies in what is today Canada, which was New France at the period it existed also. It, it happened earlier in the uh, founding process of founding Louisiana, and there was not only the Choctaw, the Natchez, any Native American nation near a French settlement would suffer from the fate of enslavement. It was a different kind of slavery. It was not, and this is, I'm this is a big issue, and I'm going to just move very quickly over it and give just a couple of um, bits of information. It was not like the enslavement of African Americans because it wasn't chattel slavery. These um, indigenous enslaved indigenous people were not bought and sold; they were just the, considered the property of some uh, European colonist. Uh, but it, it was it was common, and then it disappeared over time. So it it gradually faded out, and by the end of the women's lives in the colony, by the 1730s for sure, this was no longer a significant phenomenon. There were very few enslaved um, indigenous people left. Now, what is the message you want to leave the reader once they finish your book? Well, my message would be quite clear, and thank you for asking that. I wrote this book for the descendants. Um, these women, so many of those who survived, and by no means all of them survived, I repeat, but so many of them had so many children, and their children had so many children. And today, by today, those descendants are really all over this country. This week, since the book has appeared, Every day I've gotten an email from someone I've never heard of before in some different part of the country. And the, every email says, I just learned that I'm a descendant of so-and-so. Yesterday's email was a particularly lovely one. It was from someone, it was from a man in Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, who had learned that he knew already that on the paternal side, he was a direct descendant of one of the women. He didn't know her story. He learned from the book that he was a direct descendant on the maternal side from another woman. So he's a double descendant. And he learned the story of that grandmother. What I'm hoping to do is to get access to this information out to survivors. And truly, they're all over the country. I've heard from people, in, of course, in Louisiana, in Texas, in Alabama, in Mississippi, but I've heard from people in California, in New Jersey, in New York State, all over in places I would not have thought of before who are direct descendants. I want them to learn 
the story of their ancestor. And people have been, these women have been labeled prostitutes, thieves, dangerous criminals. You're not proud of your family's history if this is what you believe to be the story of the woman who founded your family. But if you learn that they were self-respecting, hardworking, unjustly accused young women who had one problem, poverty. If you learn that, you can be proud of your ancestors. So my message is very simple. These were not prostitutes. They were not thieves. They were unjustly convicted and they were extraordinary women who showed extraordinary courage and who managed to build unbelievable lives in what became the United States. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really have enjoyed your book. Well, thank you for asking me here. I really enjoyed talking to you.